0: Happy Father's Day, everybody. Happy Father's Day. You're good. Awesome. It's, uh, it's great to be with you tonight, and these obviously are the real soldiers of apologetics. You guys really, <laughs> really want to be able to defend the existence of God to come out tonight and to take part in part three of our series here, um, Kingdom Apologetics, standing for Jesus in the public square. And uh, by way of review... Um, The first week, uh, we went over the importance of apologetics. We live in a society today that doesn't take the Christian claim seriously. The claim that the Christian God is true, that we live in a theistic universe, a universe created by an all-good, powerful, good God revealed in Jesus Christ. Um, We live in a world that is hostile to that worldview. However, even though they're hostile to that worldview, if that worldview is true then they're living in opposition to reality. And so it's our job to, to basically wake them up and, and turn the world upside down for them, which is what the early uh, apostles did. And so the ministry of Christian apologetics is demonstrating the existence of the Christian God. First Peter 3.15 says, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense for the hope that rests in you with gentleness and with respect, and so that's where we get our word apologetics from. It's apologia in the Greek from 1 Peter 3:15. Doesn't mean to uh, say you're sorry. It means to defend the faith. And so I, for one, am very um, adamant on the fact that apologetics is going to be one of the ways that we as Christians in America are going to make a difference for Jesus in the public square. Because there was once upon a time in this great nation where the Christian worldview was respected, and, and morality was respected, and absolute truth was respected, and Jesus had respect even by those who didn't really adhere to a personal faith in him. Today, we live in a world that is very contrary to that, and you you, can, you can't do it from the top down. You have to, it's, it's a heart change. We can't make this a Christian nation from Washington or from Hollywood, um, we can use the political system. We can use the system of entertainment. Uh, but at the end of the day, we need to be able to confront this idea of secularism in the public square, wherever it's at. Those arguments that run contrary uh, to the truth of God, and be able to dissect them. And uh, so, the second week, we went over um, uh, we went over absolute truth, and we made some arguments, uh, basically that that showed. Uh, that you cannot live consistently in the world around you uh, while denying the existence of absolutes. And so I uh, recommend, if you were not here for last week, to go ahead and review that, because uh, having, being able to stand on absolute truth and absolute morality is something that's just essential. Even even the, uh, uh, the most far-left, radical, secular, humanist, liberal uh, will have a strong sense, usually, of justice. And where they get that sense from justice, according to their worldview, is very inconsistent because there's no absolute standard, there's no absolute God. And so without that standard to rest on, their idea of justice is no better than the next person's idea of justice. And so when you explain that to a secularist, they're going to have trouble, and they're going to have to reevaluate. I mean, either their fundamental belief about God, or their fundamental um, importance that they place on the value of what they would call social justice, which is a catch-all for the left's progressive mentality. And so, it deconstructs. You have to. Ha- you, you you're going to want if you have this notion of what's right, you're going to want to hang it on something bigger than a collective group. Of human beings in society, because therefore your, your rights would just come from man. And so we went over that in the second week. And so this week is probably the most dense week. This is the, we're going to go over the five, or really we're going to break it down to four classical arguments for the existence of God. These are the arguments that have, uh, that have th- these arguments have stood for centuries upon centuries. These arguments demonstrate the existence of God without appeal to the Bible, this is God's revelation in nature okay? And it's going to start with the ontological argument for the existence of God, then we're going to move to the cosmological argument for the existence of God, the teleological, and then the moral law argument. Now, why I say that there's five is there's really two versions of the cosmological argument. We don't need to go too deep into that today, but we're going to go with the one that starts from the beginning of the universe. I'll explain to you what that means in a second. Um, Why these arguments are so important For us today, these these classical theistic arguments—the arguments for the existence of God outside of uh, Scripture—why they're so important is because we're living in a society that marginalizes revelation to the point where even if you bring it up, you're automatically discounted um, in 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 schools in any place where there is you know uh, any place where uh, it could be called a public area. it's, it's discounted in all the important areas of the public square today if you whip out the Bible and you want to go to Daniel to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. That's what Paul did when he walked into the early synagogues. He took the revelation of God because it was respected, and then he argued from the Scriptures. And when Paul did that, when you see that that Paul argued from the Scriptures and proved that Jesus was the Messiah, that doesn't mean that there was a couple proof texts. He didn't go just Isaiah 53 or Daniel 9 or Psalm 22. It means that from the whole the scriptures, the entire Tanakh, the Old Testament, he reasoned how Jesus was the fulfillment of the scriptures, the solution to the human problem, and he did it from, from special revelation, The old, what we would know as the Old Testament today. Well, we, we're in a fairly different situation. I mean, it's similar on a lot of levels, but on one major level in order for us to introduce special revelation, which is what we're going to be going over next week for filled prophecy demonstrating Jesus as Messiah, um, we need to, to establish first, without being labeled as kooks, that God does exist. And luckily for us, uh, I mean, we're blessed to have God's natural revelation, his revealed, his self-revelation in the created order, in nature and in the human heart, uh, in, in our idea of morality. Uh, God is, has put his specific fingerprints on the created order order to the extent that we can, with I'll say beyond a reasonable doubt, prove that the theistic God, the God revealed in the Bible. Uh, the God that's described as the creator of matter, energy, space, and time, the omnipotent, omniscient, personal God revealed in Jesus Christ is the most plausible foundation for ultimate reality. He's the furthest one back. Ultimate reality is in a place ultimate reality is a person, and these arguments point to that, and these arguments have stood for centuries. They've been contested, and the different premises of the arguments have been dissected, and, and, uh, um, and if, uh, there is a secularist, and naturalists, and atheists, and, and uh, members of different religious persuasions have, have came against them in different ways throughout the centuries, and we don't have time to unpack all that today, but at the end of the day, these premises are defensible, and the conclusion logically follows. And when you attack these premises, often, like we'll see in the cosmological argument, you find yourself running up against established laws of reality, such as the law of causality. You find yourself trying to disprove the law of causality, which happens a lot. In debates today, you'll see it. Um, uh, Dr. William Lane Craig, a uh, uh, renowned apologist over at, at, uh, at Talbot Biola, um, has had several debates where the actually the law of causality itself, that everything that comes into existence must have a cause, is being attacked in that debate. And so it's, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting. You know, the, uh, I, uh, Romans 1, 18 through 23 uh, really comes to mind, especially at verse 23, uh, I mean, verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools. Professing to be wise... They became fools. When you reject God, when you reject ultimate reality, you may still, you have, you still, you still are made in his image. You still may have a very powerful intellect. You still may have a measure of knowledge of the created order that's incredible. But when you reject fundamentally the furthest thing, but when you reject ultimate reality, the personal God, you become a fool. And you end up arguing against things like the law of causality. Anyway, I think that'd be a good place for us to start. Roman, Romans one eighteen through 23 are, because we're in the church, are justification for this study biblically. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse because they knew God and they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their hearts. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and the birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. So that's natural law. He, his invisible attributes are clearly seen by that which are, which is made physically and also in our inner witness, the witness of the human conscious. I was conflicted as to whether to include the argument from consciousness in in this presentation of the classical theistic arguments. I left it out because it 's not a classic technically a classical theistic argument but it's it' it 's it's, it's becoming it, my favorite and hopefully uh, after this series is done the next time i speak uh, it'll be on the argument from consciousness our ability to reflect our ability our 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 consciousness our the way that we see the world and analyze ourselves uh, our self-awareness the fact that we are conscious beings speaks to the fact that um that a primary source of consciousness must exist a primary source of consciousness must exist. And it's, it's a cool philosophical argument, and there's also really, really uh, powerful examples of how uh, consciousness works in near-death experiences and things like that. So um, hopefully I'll, I'll, I'll be able to prepare something on that and do it at a later time. Um, we're going to start with the most complicated of all the arguments. And my clock's not working back there, which is probably a bad thing. <laughs> Because I have no idea how long I've gone so far. I'm sorry. All right, um, how much time I have left? All right. So we're going to start with uh, probably the most difficult or difficult argument. This this argument's usually left unpresented in the church setting, and. Um, the reason why is because it's extremely abstract, and people think that it's a trick sometimes. It's, it's, it's very hard to conceptualize. It's called the ontological argument for the existence of God. Uh, ontological argument from being... It's, it's the argument from the possibility of God's existence. The mere possibility of God's existence means that God must exist. I'll explain it to you. All right. If you get hung up on the ontological argument or you, know, you see me outside, and you want to talk about it, and I try to explain it five or six different ways, and you still don't get it. Don't, don't really worry about it. A lot of people have problems with it, but some people get it, and they love it, and it's their favorite. The ontological argument for the existence of God, and I just wanted to share, share it with you so that at least, at the, very, at the very least, you can say, yes, I'm familiar with the argument, even if you don't feel like using it yourself, or even that it's sound, though I believe it to be sound. Um, when we make arguments in this setting, when we're, when we're, when we're presenting theistic arguments, um, we, we usually use something called deductive reasoning. So there's two forms of reasoning. There's deductive reasoning, and there's inductive reasoning. Deductive reasoning is a premise plus a premise, or it doesn't have to be two. Uh, with the ontological, we're going we're gonna to deal with seven or six. But if, the, if you can establish the premises, if you can defend the premises, then the conclusion logically Follows. Okay, that's deductive reasoning. Premise pr- plus premise equals conclusion. So, the, show the premises to be true; the conclusion logically follows. So, example would be: premise one, all men are mortal. Premise two, Socrates is a man. Conclusion: therefore, Socrates is mortal. Deductive reasoning. Uh, contrast that with inductive reasoning, which we use every day. Um, a, a general conclusions drawn or inferred from specific evidences. So. Uh, Prayer was taken out of schools uh, in the late 60s, prayer was, I'm sorry, in the early 60s, prayer was taken out of schools, um, and then we saw a number of of specific examples of societal decay. Therefore, my inductive argument is that because prayer was taken out of schools, A, B, C, and D happened. That's inductive reasoning, okay? Versus deductive reasoning, it's more abstract and it's less—it's—it's it's less. You have you have less grounds to stand on when you're making uh, an inductive argument versus a deductive argument. Not to say that we don't make powerful inductive arguments all the time, but usually there's going to be more uh, better objections against them. Um, either way, okay. So the ontological argument for the existence of God. All right. Um, This was discovered by uh, Anselm of Canterbury in 1011. He was a monk, and in order to understand the ontological argument for the existence of God, you have to understand what philosophers uh, mean when they say a possible world. The term "possible world." Follow me. A possible world is is just a way of saying the way the world might have been been. A complete description of reality. Um, and then an actual world is a description of what is true. So a possible world isn't an alternate universe, it's just a possible way things might have been. So when you say something like other possible worlds, a philosopher would say uh, a possible world or other possible worlds, another possible world are descriptions of what might have been true, but are not in fact true. Like unicorns uh, might exist in another possible world, but they're not exactly true. But there, since the unicorns don 't exist, then it 's not in the actual world. you can see You could see how this ontological argument can get a little bit hairy. Just try, try to follow me all right to say something exists in a possible world is to say that some description of there is some description of reality which includes that entity. To say something exists in every possible world is to say no matter which description is true, the entity will be included in that description okay so with that in mind, here's the ontological argument for the existence of God. Premise one, it is possible that a maximally great being exists. What a maximally great being is, is the greatest being that can be conceived. All-powerful, all-knowing, all-good, all-loving, all-everything. The, the God of the Bible is a maximally great being it is possible that a maximally great being exists premise 2 if it is possible that a maximally great being exists then a maximally great being exists in some possible world some possible world some form of reality some way of conceiving the world if it is possible that a maximally great being exists he exists in 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 some possible world premise 3 If a maximally great being exists in some possible world, then he exists in every possible world. Necessary existence. Now, for a being to be maximally great, he necessarily must exist in all possible worlds. Premise four. If a maximally great being exists in every possible world, then it exists in the actual world. You see how people might think this is a trick? Philosophers don't contest premises two through six. It's only premise one. The higher you get in academia, the more powerful this argument is. Which is why, it's really, like, I really encourage you, if this is interesting you at all, Go home, look up William Lane Craig, ontological argument for the existence of God. Fascinating stuff. All right, so premise five. If a maximally great being exists in the actual world, then a maximally great being exists. Premise six. Therefore, a maximally great being exists, or actually that's shaped as the conclusion, my conclusion, therefore, God exists. Amen? The ontological argument For the existence of God. The most controversial, the most controversial premise here, the higher you go in the levels of philosophy, I'm not a philosopher, but the higher you go, um, Dr. Craig will explain, the one that's attacked is number one. It is possible that a maximally great being exists. So to attack number one, to attack premise number one, you have to make it absurd to believe in the possibility of the existence of God. Let me say that again. You have to make it absurd to believe in the possibility of the existence of God, like a a square circle or a a married bachelor. Uh, How ridiculous, how absurd. However, from the next arguments that we're going to see, and also from our experience, we know that it's not completely absurd to believe in the existence of God. We know that the possibility of God must exist, the possibility of a maximally great being is is easy is is easy to assert, and if a maximally great being is possibly true, high level philosophers, agnostic, atheistic philosophers will agree that if it's possible that God exists, then God must exist. So they attack the possibility of God's existence. It's a real powerful argument. It, it's it's very conceptual. It's it's very abstract, but it's a powerful argument. So, next argument. Cosmological argument for the existence of God. Cosmological argument. This is the argument from the beginning of the universe. Argument from the beginning of the universe. For the majority of the modern scientific era, I mean, we're talking about before um, before Einstein in the early part of the last century, um, the steady state model of the universe was the model that was most accepted. The, uh, the, uh, the model that the universe always existed, the steady-state model, was dominant. And for the atheist, that was a good time to live, because the thing that's the furthest back is God. And if the universe is the furthest thing back, if the universe didn't need to be created, if it always existed, then there was really no room for a transcendent God— Maybe in a corner of a church, maybe in your private faith you might believe, but the foundation of reality then would be the universe, not a person, but a place. Now, before we get into this argument, there's a philosophical way of proving this isn't true. We didn't need science. We didn't need science in this aspect to prove that the universe had a beginning and that the universe wasn't eternal. Let me explain why. Eternity, you can't add anything to eternity. You cannot add a second to eternity. You cannot add a day to eternity. You cannot add anything to infinity. Infinity is infinity. You can't add or subtract from it. It's infinite. It's a concept that goes beyond our human understanding. You don't add anything to it. Okay? However, we will add a day to the timeline tomorrow. So therefore, there must have been a first day. You see? So there's a way to do it without science. However, science has verified for, uh, you know, for, for the, that group of agnostic um, uh, scientists and, and everything over the past hundred or so years, we actually have the scientific evidence now to prove that there's a beginning of the universe. And so here's how the cosmological argument goes. Everything that begins to exist, premise one, has a cause. Premise two, the universe had a beginning, conclusion. Therefore, the universe had a cause. Or God, we, we would identify the cause as God. And so we must defend premise one. Defending premise one... Uh, we, the best way to defend premise one, which is everything that begins to exist have, has a cause, is to assert the law of causality. Okay, and the law of causality, simply put, the law of cause and effect states that every material effect must have an adequate, antecedent, or simultaneous cause. Any, in other words, anything that has, that if, if, if something has a beginning in time, it must have a cause. Well, The next question, well, who who created God? What caused God? Since God does not have a beginning in time, since time itself had that foundational start, the the author of time must not be bound by time, therefore you can't speak of of God as, as anything other than the first cause. So therefore he is uncaused and he is timeless. God doesn't need a cause, because God doesn't have a beginning in time. So anything with a beginning in time, anything that begins to exist, has a cause. Premise one is easily defended. Um, W.T. Stace, professor of philosophy at Princeton University, 1934. This is around the time when the cosmological argument for the existence of God is really taking its modern shape uh, with the... with the Hubble Space Telescope and the um, uh, Einstein's theory of general relativity. Uh, this is a really important formative time. And so this would be the time where you'd find the most uh, attacks against the law of causality by the atheist and the agnostic. However, um, W.T. Stace, professor of philosophy at Princeton University, an example of how this this law stands up everywhere in academia, Every student of logic knows this is the ultimate canon of the sciences, talking about the law of causality, the foundation of them all. If we did not believe in the truth of causation, namely everything which has a beginning has a cause, and that the same circumstances and the same things invariably happen and that all the sciences at once would crumble to dust. In every scientific investigation, this truth, the law of causality, is assumed. Three decades ago, Robert Jastrow, founder and uh, former director of the Goddard uh, Institute for Space Studies at NASA, wrote, The universe and everything that has happened in it since the beginning of time are a grand effect without a known cause. An effect without a known cause? That is not the world of science. It is the world of witchcraft, of wild events and the whims of demons, a medieval world that science has tried to banish. As scientists, what are we to make of this picture? I do not know. I would only like to present the evidence for the statement that the universe and man himself originated in a moment when time began. Robert Jastrow, agnostic astrophysicist, very important man uh, in, in, in the sciences, and he's basically looking at the evidence saying we cannot deny the fact that the universe had a beginning. We cannot deny cause and effect. So what are we going to say about it? This is the world of witchcraft. If we're not going to believe in a God, if we're not going to put God as the furthest thing back, all we have to do is to say that, yeah, the the thing that is the most foundational to our existence as agnostics, this universe itself, is this mega-mystery that is in the realm of magic. Jastrow also said, now we see all the astronomical evidence leads to the biblical view of the origin of the world. The details differ, but the essential elements in the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis are the same. The chain of events leading to man commenced suddenly and sharply at a definite moment in time in a flash of light and energy. Robert Jastrow, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, created the word bara from no prior existing materials in a flash of light. He created it. The, theologians had it right the whole time. Had it right the whole time. And so complicated, very complicated attacks have, have come against the law of causality that they wish they didn't have to... I, these attacks would have never arose if the steady state model of the universe was allowed to prevail in the scientific community. But since it hadn't, now you've got to attack the law of causality. Or premise two, it's, it's, harder, it's, it's even harder to attack with the scientific evidence that we have today. It's harder to attack the fact that the universe had a beginning. We have these, the universe had a beginning, premise two. We have these form of, forms of evidence from established science. The second law of thermodynamics, the fact that the universe is expanding. So the second law of thermodynamics, if the universe was eternal, uh, heat, there would have been, be no energy left in the earth because energy is decaying. the the, the universe is expanding, heat heat is, we're losing heat, if the universe had existed in perpetuity in the past, it would have been, we would have suffered a heat death already, so the second law of thermodynamics proves the fact the universe had a beginning, the universe is expanding, well it's expanding from a singular beginning point then, so that proves the fact that it has a beginning, We can actually see radiation from the Big Bang, or I'd like to call it the creation event. Uh, And there's great galaxy seeds. The seeds of all the galaxies can actually be measured and and shown by uh, um, astrophysicists and um, astronomers. Great galaxy seeds and, of course, Einstein's theory of general relativity all prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the universe indeed had a finite beginning in the past. And so what do we do? What does our scientific community do? The secularist community do? Come up with wild theories like the multiverse. The multiverse that, that you can have other universes behind the one that, that, that created our universe, and they're all banging together, and poof, here we are. Well, you can't, philosophically, we can dismantle that. You can't, add, you, you can't have an infinite amount of universes because when you add a universe, you're adding to infinity, so you can't do that, um, the the latest attempt is is one by uh, uh, Dr. Stephen Hawking in which he actually uses a, uh, a a quantum physics gravity theory, a quantum mechanics gravity theory to try to uh, disprove the fact that the universe had a beginning. So that's really beyond my pay grade. Um, you you want to you want to believe that? You know, investigate. All right. I think it's the gravity of the gaps theory. People talk about the God of the gaps theory. When you can't explain something, you just say, "Well, God did it." They accuse us of that. Well, it, I, their gravity and ours is God. Then I guess I don't know. That's uh, so. But they're they're ridiculous. These these theories that have come up to try to uh, come against the uh, premise too, the fact that the universe had a beginning, are so out there. And the uh, the attacks against the law of causality just show the wickedness in the heart of those that would try to deny. Natural revelation—the fact that the universe had a cause. So now that we know that the universe had a cause, what is the most rational explanation of this of this cause? Well, from our cosmological argument, we know conceptually. The conceptual analysis is that it has to be uh, the cause of space, time, matter, and energy has to be beginningless, uncaused, timeless, spaceless, immaterial, enormously powerful, and personal. Why personal? Because nothing that's impersonal can intend to cause. Nothing that is impersonal can show the attention to cause. Wouldn't that be impossible because everything is God? Excuse me. Wouldn't that be impossible because everything is God? No, no, no. I don't think. I, I don't think. I don't think you're you're quite following me. Um, God is. Outside of matter, energy, space, and time. So the thing that is outside of time cannot be bound by time itself. It has to be timeless. Or Dr. Hugh Ross says, time full, like a weird multi, whatever. Uh, Yeah, did that help you? Cool, all right. Um, So the universe had a beginning. The fact that the universe had a beginning, the important cannot be understated. The beginning of the universe was not a natural occurrence. Something that is natural can be explained within the confines of the universe. Something that actually creates the universe must be supernatural. All right, teleological argument for the existence of God. This is the argument from the design of the universe. Teleological argument from design. And you know what? One final comment on the cosmological argument. When people deny uh, the plausibility of miracles, when people deny the plausibility of miracles, oh, you believe that Jesus turned water into wine, or you believe that you know, somebody lived inside a fish, you, uh, you believe that you know, it didn't rain for a certain amount of time, or this didn't happen, or any, pick your biblical miracle, pick your ridiculous biblical miracle, bread from the sky, whatever you want, whatever, whatever miracle you select, or whatever miracle they're using against you, point them to Genesis 1.1 and use the cosmological argument. You tell them, look, the greatest miracle is the one that you're face-to-face with every day in the sciences. Matter, energy, space, and time from nothing. The entire universe. Okay? So if we can go ahead and establish the cosmological argument, the fact that the universe must have had a cause and then we can say some finite things about that cause then it makes all the other, other miracles, even the resurrection of Jesus Christ, pale in comparison. The Creator is outside of the box. We don't live in a closed-box universe. He can reach in. And why does He reach in? Why do miracles happen? Well, that's a good discussion. That's a good theological discussion. It's a great practical discussion of practical theology. One of the reasons why miracles happen is because God validates his word. Another reason is because he has compassion. Um, You can discuss and debate the reasons for miracles, but when you say that it's a ridiculous thing that a miracle can happen, point them to Genesis 1-1. Say, well, let's talk about the ultimate miracle before we start talking about the bread from the sky which is the creation of the universe. So the teleological argument for the existence of God. We nail down the fact that the universe has this cause, and we believe that that cause is most likely um, identified as the God of the Bible, but this one nails it down even further. Premise one of the teleological argument. Anything with features of complex design must be the work of a designer. That is premise one. Premise two. The universe has features of complex design. Conclusion. Therefore, the universe is the work of a designer. For the sake of time, defending premise one, do it this way. All right, we've we've gone into some really, you know, dense, thick examples. Um, I'll, I'll I'll try to give the brains a rest here. All right, um, defend premise one this way. Anything that uh, with features of complex design must have a designer. Um, if you're flying above a beach. Okay, You're in a small plane, you're flying above a beach. Mr. Atheist, me and you, we're flying above a beach. And, and we look down at that beach on an island and we see the, um, the, the letters SOS engraved on the beach and a signal fire, okay? Would we be correct to assume that there's someone on that beach that needs help? Okay. All right, this is not even intricate design. This is S, O, S, and a fire. It could be conceivable that, that time and chance swerved those letters into the beach and that the wind blew and rocks hit together and a fire sparked up. It could be possibly conceivable, I guess, if you're a matter-space-time-chance-atheist or agnostic. You know, possibly. However, anybody would, would admit we should probably go check it out. SOS means somebody's stranded on that island. Let's go help them out. So, our universe has features of complex design that are so much more intricate than a little message like that, that it is absolutely absurd. Premise two, the universe has features of complex design. This is from uh, uh, Dr. Hugh Ross, uh, Ministry of Reasons to Believe in Glendora, California, uh, a friend of mine as well. Um, the universe seems to be fine-tuned for the existence of life. Fine-tuned. Some people would even say the existence of human life. That's called the anthropic principle. Check out these fine-tuned ratios. If you change these ratios at all, the the possibility for life disappears in a second. Ratio ratio of electrons to protons. Fine-tuned. Fine-tuned to better than one part in 10 to the 37th power. Ratio of electromagnetic uh, uh, force to gravity, one in 10 to the 40th power. Expansion rate of the universe, the rate at which the universe expands, fine-tuned to more than one in 10 to the 55th. Speed that up or slow that down, you have no stars. No stars, no heavy elements. No heavy elements, no you. Mass energy, mass density of the universe, one in ten to the fifty-nine. Look, there is there is ten to the eighty atoms in the entire physical universe. These chances of this be of these of these physical laws being being so tailored, so tightly uh, designed, the chances of this happening by accident are just absolutely absurd. And then the cosmological constant, which is a fancy way of something saying that it expands the universe one in 10 to the 120th power. You change that just a little bit. You change that ratio of precision just a little bit, no chance of life at any point in time in the universe's history. Put that in perspective, um, a gravity wave detector uh, made by Caltech scientists uh, measured gravity waves at a precision of 1 in 10 to the 23rd power. And to my knowledge, at the time of the publication, that was the highest example of human fine-tuning. So, the universe displays examples of fine-tuning that are radically higher than man's best efforts and radically so more demonstrable throughout so many different areas. You look at DNA, there's more coded information in one strand of DNA uh, than there is in the entire Encyclopedia Britannica. One strand of DNA. One strand. One strand. Um, Richard Dawkins... Zoologist, biologist, uh, Oxford University, um, has wrote has wrote a uh, a book called The God Delusion, mocking believers uh, of God, and it's it's really an awful work philosophically. Uh, but but he makes some some scientific claims against God, and uh, he's he's a, a proponent of chance theory, and he actually says, and I quote: "You have to." You have to tell yourself. When you look at these examples in biology, you have to tell yourself that these were not designed, that these came into existence by chance. You have to tell yourself. Why would you have to tell yourself that as a scientist? That seems like the opposite of science. Science is is defined today as that which we can see, that which which is measurable. But the the philosophical claims made by scientists are just so way out there. Uh, The claim of scientism, that the only thing that is of any value that we can base any kind of uh, decision about the universe on is that which we can test and observe and be verified by the five senses, that very proposition is a philosophical proposition about science. It's not science, because you can't measure the proposition. It can't be touched by the five senses. You're making a proposition that says the only thing of value is that which you can touch and that you can measure and that you can observe. Well, the proposition that that is the only thing that's of value is itself not observable in that same scientific sense. Therefore, scientism collapses. So the teleological argument, anything with features of complex design must be the work of a designer. The universe has features of complex design. We just went over five of them. There are over 200 examples of fine-tuning in the Earth alone for human life, for human life. You can check that out at reasons.org. Put in the search bar, fine-tuning examples for Earth. I encourage you to check that out. We don't have time to go over them here, of course. And the conclusion, the universe has a designer because it has these features of complex design. Christopher Hitchens, uh, a famous uh, um, Atheist, uh, or I think he classified himself as an agnostic. Debater, uh, he debated against William Lane Craig on one occasions on occasion on the existence of God. Toward the end of his life, said that the most persuasive argument that he particularly heard, and, and Hitch was good. Hitch was really a really good debater in the um, in the public setting. Um, had a really great way with words. He said his most uh, the most convincing. Uh, argument that he ran up against from the other side, which would have been our side, is the teleological argument. Hard to look at life, hard to look at the universe and see it as a result of time and chance. Really hard to do that. I would say it takes a level of moral depravity to assert something like that, but we don't need to go that far. That's actually our next argument, the moral law argument for the existence of God. Moral law argument for the existence of God. Premise one. Now this, this argument has been, uh, has, been, has been presented in two ways. I'm going to give you the one that, uh, that Dr. William Lane Craig presents because I think that it's a little bit more concise. It's a little more practical. Premise one. Moral law argument. If God does not exist, then objective morals, moral, moral values and duties do not exist. Premise two. Objective moral values and duties do exist. Conclusion. Therefore, God exists. So, to defend premise one, if God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. That's not difficult at all. It rests completely on premise two. Objective moral values and duties do exist. If we can demonstrate, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that objective moral values and duties exist then it logically follows that these objective morals and duties have a source. There is no such thing as a law without a lawgiver. There is no such thing as a law without a lawgiver. And all we need to do is demonstrate the fact that there is a moral law. Demonstrate the fact that there is a moral law. It logically follows that there is a moral lawgiver. Now, what you usually run into is cultural examples, where the other side tries to use examples of how, in different cultures, different beliefs about right and wrong persist. And so therefore, it's evidence that there is no such thing as an objective morality. What we do is we take them a step beyond that. We say, are there things that are 100% wrong for all cultures at all times? The fact that you can find examples of a confused culture or a completely depraved culture actually lines up perfectly well with the biblical worldview. Perfectly well with the biblical worldview. Not all ideas are equal. Some ways of looking at the world produce abnormal, abhorrent results. Okay? And so if you have a group of people that believe some really radically wicked things about the way the universe exists and, and the nature of God or the lack of the existence of God, look in the last century, look at the products of, of secular humanism. You can find it in the utopias of the USSR and Mao's China uh, and Pol Pot and, 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 these, uh, and we can see it today in North Korea. You can see what happens when man is placed at the center. Okay, In those cultures, there's radically different ideas about right, and about wrong, that does not mean that we cannot all, even the most radical skeptic, can't come to the conclusion that there are certain things that are wrong for all people in all places at all times. If a certain group of people got together and decided, for example, that the Holocaust was righteous, okay, and that the Holocaust was an example of love, okay, those people would be absolutely wrong no matter how many of them there were. Okay? Yeah. No, but what you can do is you can marginalize their their standing for the belief. It can only be relative. Oh, and you're you're talking about the... um, Oh, if you're in a debate with somebody who believes that the Holocaust was was 100% right, well, let's take it as the debate against the, the relativist. Let's take, let's take the debate right to the relativist. The relativist has no standing outside of his own or his own perceived or her own perceived cultural uh, affinities to defend what he believes or she believes is right. Nothing outside of, of himself, herself, or, his, or, or their group, or their country, or their culture. Can't hang it on anything, on anything absolute. So if they can't hang it on anything absolute, then they would have to agree with the statement. You can actually present it in reverse, which is, which is actually quite convincing. They would actually have to agree with the statement that there's nothing wrong with the Holocaust objectively. They'd have to agree with that. They'd have to agree with the statement that there is nothing eternally, objectively evil in the world. That evil is completely a, a fabricated result. It doesn't jive with reality. People do not live that way people understand intuitively that there is such a thing as good and there is such a thing as evil. You would have to say that, he's, that Hitler was culturally wrong, that Hitler, according to a human consensus, was wrong. But if the human consensus, consensus changed, then Hitler could be perceived as right. So there's no objective standard. Which follows, if there is no objective standard, then you don't have really any ground to believe anything and impose that belief on anyone. All beliefs are equal. All beliefs are equal. All beliefs may not be practical. Certain beliefs might, might need to be necessary for the advancement of a civilization. But not all beliefs. All beliefs can be... There, there is no belief that can be actually hung on a, a, a standard of truth, a, an absolute standard. So, without the, the ability to take, a, uh, to take a moral statement and qualify it uh, in relative to something outside of, of finite experience, all beliefs are finite, all beliefs are perishing, all beliefs are equal philosophically. And to understand it in a different way, look, with the moral law of the existence of God, Without an absolute standard for morality, the things that we value most in culture, regardless of what our persuasion is, regardless of what our faith is, they're all dead. Character, beauty. Um, if you ask somebody, ask a, ask a relativist, what's more important, image or character? Image or character? Well, they'll have to say image. Image. They have to say image because character is who you are when nobody else is around, when it's just between you and God or you and yourself, what you are on the inside. Everybody wants there to be a standard, trust. People want you to be honest. We all live in a world, in a society that is grounded that is at least somewhat hinged to a desire for natural law to be true. A desire for, um, for, for, for these, these, these attributes that we, that we all, you know, righteousness, honesty, love, truth. Everybody has a desire in their heart to, for politicians to portray those instead of you know being caught up on, on image and propaganda and and power and coercion, everyone has that in their heart that they, they that this this Judeo-Christian model of character ultimately underlies. So is it? I would I would ask I would ask the relativists: Is it a hundred percent wrong? Is it a hundred percent wrong? for a politician, for one of the politicians that you elect to go up there and completely do the opposite of what they said that they were going to do and intentionally and reveal that they had intentionally deceived you. Because they're caught up in a world of politics. They'd say, yeah, it's wrong. They say, well say so and you can even take an example, you know, from their world. Yeah. You know. <laughs> so you elected a politician to go in and, and, and fight for the LGBTQ whatever agenda. And then they got there and they started fighting for traditional marriage. would you say that's absolutely wrong for them to do why well because they lied well why shouldn't they why, why why shouldn't they lie? Do you feel a wrong was committed that's actually a you know that, that, that can be rested on a standard or is it just a a whimsical thing dependent on the culture at hand, depending on, you know, and if, if it depends on the culture or a group of people, why isn't his, maybe his view of truth was to, was to lie. Maybe his view of truth was the power was more important. Maybe his view of truth or her view, view of truth was that traditional marriage needed to be, defend, to be defended at all cost. So if traditional marriage needs to be defended at all costs, then why not just go ahead and if it helps you do it, Why not lie and say you're against it when you're really for it? This is how the politicians play today. This is how they play today. The current president today sat right there on Rick Warren's stage and knowingly lied about his position on marriage. Lied. David Axelrod, his handler, his hatchet man, came out and said it. Google it. Yeah, we knew we planned that. That was a lie. Well, hey, you know, right now, you know, the fact is, the thing that scares me the most, good job, brother, the thing thing that scares me the most is that nobody cares, is that they can be honest about that lie. Nobody cares. I'm talking about it. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. You got to tell people why they should care about something like that. And in telling them why, it leads them to the source of truth, to the source of wisdom, source of justice. And so, yeah, I mean, if we can prove that objective moral moral duties and values exist, then therefore God exists. If it's objectively wrong to lie to get yourself in office, get yourself in office and then go completely against what you said you were going to do, if that's objectively wrong, that objectivity has to come from somewhere. It can't come from subjectivity. So that's it, moral argument for the existence of God. So we've gone through the ontological argument for the existence of God, the cosmological argument for the existence of God, the teleological argument for the existence of God, and the moral law argument for the existence of God. Look, I just want it's a primer just to introduce everybody to them. Uh, if you have any other questions, please see me. I can direct you to some sources where you can, you can read about them and extensively. There was a book out. Uh, Gosh, about seven or eight years ago, called "I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist" by uh, Norm Geisler and Frank Turek. Uh, they did a really, really good job uh, with the, with the first three—the cosmological, teleological, and moral law argument. Um, I recommend that book. There's a thousand places where you can go. We really need to be able to to take these classical arguments for the existence of God and present them persuasively in the public square because we don't need a Bible for it. As you saw, there there was there wasn't any. I didn't open up the word and say, well, thus says, or, you know, let's look at this prophecy, or, you know, let's, uh, you know, th- th- this is from natural law. This is from the evidence from the created order, and we can use it. You know, thank you, Lord, for, um, for Father's Day, for, for being our Father God. Thank you for your, your self-revelation in nature. Um, thank you, God, for the ability uh, to go out into this world with, uh, with truth, Lord God, and to, and to, and to be able to... Um, and to be able to do our part in confronting this culture where, where truth isn't even important anymore and image is everything and character is dead and it's upside down, Lord. And, and, and thank you for, for the, um, the ability to come together and to, and to study your truth and how we can set this right, uh, especially as Christians in, the, in this nation, Lord God, that you've blessed us with. Help us, Lord God. Empower us to do our part, Lord God, uh, to reestablish the, uh, the view of Christian theism in the world today. Uh, in the name of Jesus. We have communion, and uh, when you're coming up to take the communion, uh, it's the bread first, the body had to be broken for the remission of sins, and we take the blood which is shed for the remission of sins. Um, it's the ultimate sacrifice. The entire sacri- sacrificial system explained in the Mosaic Law uh, was a type a, a prophecy, a, a, a prefigure uh, to what Jesus did, and when Jesus presented himself, he said, you do this in remembrance of me, of the finished work, the creator of matter, energy, space, and time coming into existence and taking all that evil upon himself so that we didn't have to suffer eternally apart from God. Past, present, and future sins. Uh, thank you very much. I really appreciate your guys' time today. Uh, I know this one was really dense. Uh, next week we're going to do a lot of fun. We're going to get into the Word and look at fulfilled prophecy and it's a lot more exciting and everything like that. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you.